Welcome to the Off the Charts Football Podcast. I'm Matt Manicharian of Sports Info Solutions, joined by Aaron Schatz, the godfather of football analytics and founder of Football Outsiders. As always, we've got our producer, Justin Stein, with us. And today we are joined by Zachary Binney, epidemiologist at Oxford College of the University of Emory University and occasional contributor to Football Outsiders, uh, usually writing about injury research there. Uh, what's going on, Zach? Uh, a whole lot, as you might imagine, uh, really <laughs> transitioned to the intersection of, uh, of sports and COVID-19. Uh, it is important. I always like to start all of these with a disclaimer that I am not an infectious disease expert myself, but all epidemiologists get some training in, infect- in infectious diseases. It's the core of our discipline. And uh, I've just been working to bridge the gap between epidemiology and public health and, um, and sports. That's And where we are right now, that means COVID-19 and sports. And you've been talking in a lot of places about what's going on with COVID-19 and how leagues can possibly get back to playing. And this is a good week to finally have you on the podcast because this is the week that the big news came down that two of the top five college conferences are not going to play this fall. So, you know, football, we were very lucky that this hit in the middle of our off season, we were really able to go about business as usual, a little less in college because they couldn't do spring football, but for the most part, You know, OTAs were online instruction, but teams went on, everybody went on like usual. Now we're starting to feel like the other sports do. This is starting to affect things, both in the way football teams in the NFL are practicing, the fact that the preseason games were canceled, but especially on the college level, this is really affecting everything. Yeah, it's it's really tough. Essentially, you know, it seemed like when this hit, we had months to get our arms uh, around this thing. And unfortunately, for various reasons, we have, uh, we have failed to do so. And we continue to have uh, quite high rates uh, of the virus that's making it difficult to take any steps back towards normality, uh, sports, including college football and the NFL included. And if we are able to bring sports back in this country, it's going to be more difficult, more expensive, and more dangerous uh, than pretty much anywhere else. So you see, if you just sort of scan the landscape of sports right now, You see that bubble plans in the U.S. from the National Women's Soccer League to Major League Soccer to the NBA and uh, the NHL, they are working. They are keeping players and staff and the community safe. Um, You look at other countries like uh, Germany, UK, Spain, Italy, they were all able to finish off their top soccer league seasons outside of a bubble, but they had gotten the virus under better control. Then you see what happens in the U.S. when you try to do sports in a non-bubble atmosphere. And we saw, uh, we've seen two outbreaks in Major League Baseball so far. Uh, We saw two outbreaks in Major League Soccer just before teams entered the bubble. And we've seen numerous outbreaks on high school football teams and college teams during summer workouts. So it's just a really tough thing to bring back uh, football or really most sports right now, most team sports at least, and not expect uh, COVID-19 to spread because we have too many cases and, and not enough testing to quickly identify those people before they can spread it. Is, is football more dangerous to play because of the close contact compared to other sports? I mean, there's close contact between players in basketball and, and hockey, but Yeah. So I think you can basically grade any sport along three dimensions in terms of its risk. Number one, is it indoors or outdoors? Football is outdoors mostly, right? So that's good. 
The second is how many people are involved, because at some point COVID transmission is just a numbers game, right? More people means more chances for somebody to be infected and more people that they can spread the virus to. It's not rocket science. The more hosts you have, the, the worse off uh, you are. Exponents are very hard for people. <laughs> yeah. Well, this isn't even exponents, really. This is just adding people. Um, um, at this point, we haven't even gotten into exponential growth, but football involves a lot of people. So that's not good. And then the third dimension is contact. The more close contact that you have, the easier it is for the virus to spread. Football doesn't grade out very well there. Football has something of a built-in advantage over other sports with the fact that if you install face shields, you can kind of play with PPE, personal protective equipment. But even then, those are not going to be 100% effective. And I would still be, you know, very concerned for um, over the course of a game, like offensive and defensive linemen to spread the disease to each other. It is unfortunately one of the more difficult sports to play when you have a disease that spreads from respiratory droplets in close contact. Well, I have a silly question kind of on that. So respiratory droplets, so things that are coming out of your mouth and nose, so the shield would help. Is there any risk of transmission through like sweat or other bodily fluids or anything else that might go on? Or is it, is it strictly that if you can contain what's coming out of that mouth and nose area, that that's really it? Well, what I'll say is that the mouth and the nose, um, you know, droplets that come sort of directly from your lungs, that seems to be the major source of transmission. Is it possible that we could find out that it's uh, transmitted other ways? Potentially, but far and away, this is a respiratory virus. It spreads via some combination of respiratory droplets or quote unquote being airborne, which is this whole massive fight in the engineering and virology fields. And what does airborne actually mean? But I'll just break it down for your listeners. The, so respiratory droplet spread, what we usually mean by that is relatively large droplets that kind of, because of gravity, they come out of our mouths. We can't see them. They're not that large, but they kind of fall to the ground relatively quickly. Uh, kind of like finer spittle, right? Spittle, but but finer. And then there are even smaller droplets that can hang in the air for a long period of time. We do know uh, from a number of studies now, or we have good evidence, that if you're in a room together with people, um, those particles can, you can spread the virus to people more than, say, six feet away from you, because it's not just the droplets that fall quickly. You can also produce droplets with the virus that hang around. And if they hang around long enough in a room without a lot of ventilation, um, that's probably how it spreads around bars, for example. So in that sense, it's airborne. Okay, this is a really weird ventilation question. But we were talking about football being a game played outdoors. Are dome stadiums large enough that they sort of count as outdoors? Or because of the way that air conditioning works in them, do they still count as indoors, even though it's such a huge space? So I'm not a civil engineer or an expert in airflow. What I will say is that the answer is different depending on whether you're talking about players or you're talking about fans, right? If you have the players spending most of their time in the field in this cavernous open area and you maybe set up some fans or something so you increase airflow a little bit without messing up uh, the wind for your kickers or something like that, you know, theoretically that would, that would probably help and be closer to outdoor than indoor, right? You're not in a classroom or a bar or something like that, right? It's much, much bigger. There's more air. But 
we have to be careful because then people might say, well, so isn't an indoor stadium just like an outdoor stadium for the purposes of fans? But there you've got to worry about all of the enclosed concourses and bathrooms and concession lines and beer lines. So there I see a lot more danger from indoor stadiums for fans uh, than I do for players. Uh, that's what I would say. Okay, I wanted to kind of reset because you wrote something on NFLinjuryanalytics.com actually back in June that kind of laid out uh, some guidelines the way that you saw them. And there have been some interesting uh, things that have happened since then, including very recently, that uh, I think looking back on this, uh, we might be able to parse a little bit. So you said, Mm -hmm. um, first, you need to be seeing fewer cases among your players and staff than you would have if you hadn't restarted. You're talking about criteria to to restart a sport. So fewer cases among your players and staff than you would have if you hadn't restarted. Second, shut the team down, team or league down if you see an outbreak, three to four cases on one or multiple teams in a few days span. And third, ensure you're not hoarding tests or medical resources that your communities need. Finally, write down and publicize an objective red line. If you feel the situation's too complex, empower an independent board of experts to make shutdown decisions, leaving commissioners to, quote, know it when they see it may tempt you to push things too far. So going back to the first sentence of that, you said, you need to be seeing fewer cases among your players and staff than you would have if you hadn't restarted. Mm -hmm. That seems really a whole lot like Trevor Lawrence's argument for why it is safe for the college players to go back. Because he's kind of saying you have to compare to where they would be otherwise. Does he have a point? His thinking and framing of the question is right on. He has no data to back it up. Okay, that's that's the problem. I don't have an issue with how he framed that because that is the right question. Although you don't just want to think about the players, right? You want to think about the coaches, uh, the staff who are probably older and at higher risk of a bad outcome than the players are. You want to think about the families. You want to think about everybody in the campus community that's going to be affected as well. So it's not just about will the players be safer uh, at home. And then the other thing about that is... Um, if you cancel college football, these players aren't going home unless the broader school cancels, probably, right? And then that's a much bigger issue. That's no longer the Big Ten. That's a university saying it, it can't operate. Uh, but, you know, yes, you do want to think about the counterfactual for everybody, meaning what would the situation look like broadly in terms of infections and, uh, and uh, bad outcomes and heart muscle inflammation and death? Uh, if you tried to restart or play college football or the NFL versus if you didn't. And so let's go to the NFL for just a minute uh, because they released some interesting data yesterday, which was that 1.7% of their players, I believe, or no, 1.7% of everybody and 1.9% of their players tested positive at intake. So that creates kind of a baseline for how safe an environment the NFL has to create. If you are testing throughout the season, and you stay at, say, 1% of your players and staff testing positive over about a two-week period, these intake tests probably captured mostly infections from the previous two weeks. So if every two weeks you see 1% of people getting sick, some people might say, wow, you're having, uh, what, 20 cases among players every two weeks, like 10 a week? Holy cow, that's a lot. But Honestly, if we ask how many of these guys were getting sick before you restarted the season, you would say, well, you would have seen maybe about 10 of them getting sick every week anyway, right? So if you apply that logic out to Clemson, 
on intake, they had what thirty something people that were sick, right? So no, 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 no. And I've true? I've seen that I've seen that misconception. No, 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 no. The vast majority of their cases happened from spread on campus after the players had gotten back. That's the thing. No, very few of their people showed up. I think it was like two or three who tested positive at intake, and then that became forty something. I think was the final total in the end. So no. That Clemson created a massive threat because there is no way that 30% or nearly 40% of their team would have tested positive by now had they been at home. That's just ridiculous. Nowhere in the country has seen uh, that level of spread outside of meatpacking plants and prisons. So no, Clemson absolutely did not create a safe environment. I'm happy, But, but if I you're able to keep it below that level, then there's an argument that it's a good idea. But I mean, it sounds pretty open and closed based on what you're saying, because fewer cases than if you wouldn't have restarted there, you literally have the case at Trevor Lawrence's own school that when they restarted, they increased the transmission rate that you're talking about. So in every way that you look about it, sure, Trevor Lawrence, that's the right way to think about it. And if you think through that way of thinking about it, you guys absolutely shouldn't be open. Well, Clemson didn't. UNC didn't. Uh, University of Texas didn't trying to think of the other ones that shut down uh, practices at some point due to double-digit cases. There were many. Sorry, Aaron? Louisville, I believe. Uh, Louisville, I think so, yes. So those schools did not create a safer environment. Others uh, looked like they were creating a safer environment for a while, but then had outbreaks. That would be, for example, Indiana and Rutgers. Uh, And then you have other schools that so far have managed to, and Michigan State, And then you have others like the University of Michigan that so far seem to have avoided a big outbreak. Now, does Coach Harbaugh just have the magic formula for keeping his team disciplined and and not getting COVID-19? Maybe. Uh, But, you know, it it would be – I wouldn't be being an honest scientist if I didn't say we've seen some schools that seem to have so far – created a relatively safe environment for their players based on whatever they're doing. But the problem with that, of course, is that the past is no guarantee of the future. And Michigan State, Indiana, and Rutgers all look like they were doing great until they weren't. So how long can Michigan keep that up? How long can any school keep that up? I don't know. They might say they think they can, but I wouldn't necessarily bet on it. Yeah. Going back to that that, that passage, you said the second thing was shut the team or league down if you see an outbreak. And you even parenthetically said three to four cases on one or multiple teams in a few days span. So take baseball, for example. They're the non-bubble league that we've seen operating that that started so far within the States. And they've had... Well, you've also seen the United Soccer League, MLS's minor league. I I haven't personally seen that. (laughs) So three to four cases on one or multiple teams. So we saw the Marlins have uh, multiple cases. We've seen the Cardinals have multiple cases and each team has shut down for a period of time. Is that sort of it, the protocol? Are they doing a decent job and, and we can just continue to go forward like that? And that's what we should expect the NFL, for example, to look like potentially? Or, or is this different or should they be stopping right now? The question with Major League Baseball, first of all, is they didn't act quickly enough when they saw three or four cases on the Marlins. They still played a game with the Phillies. And that didn't necessarily put the Phillies at risk because baseball is a very physically distant sport. And indeed, we don't seem to have seen any transmission to the Phillies outside of a visiting clubhouse attendant. That's great news. But you still got the team, your team, the Marlins together and put them at risk in the clubhouse and the dugout and put them at risk from each other. So MLB did not react 
quickly enough to shut that down and may have contributed to a few extra cases on the Marlins, though it's hard to tell. The Cardinals did pretty much shut down when they should have, but by the time they knew they had an outbreak because they're only testing every other day and taking up to a couple days to get the results back, by the time you've detected a couple of cases, uh, there could have been transmission going on for four or five days before you even knew it. And by then you have an outbreak. And so that makes it really, really difficult without more frequent and faster turnaround testing. Should Major League Baseball be continuing? They certainly, certainly shouldn't accept this as the status quo. If these large outbreaks are going to continue, then no, MLB should shut down. Their argument has been uh, that uh, you know the players and staff got a wake-up call, they're going to be more careful, and we tightened our protocols and we think that we can stop this uh, from happening again. Uh, time will tell uh, if they're right. But, uh, but yeah, you need to look out for outbreaks. And the thing is, even if you only have a few cases, you have to expect that more cases are going to come because this disease takes time. It's like a delayed rush, right? It, it, the play is developing. You may see one thing, but it's going to turn into something else in a minute. But unfortunately, it's not operating on that timescale. It's on a timescale of days. So it's, it's really difficult and you have to be really, really careful. And um, if you think you have an outbreak, you either need to do really good contact tracing and remove anybody who's had uh, the possibility of contact with any case out of the team, uh, which would be really hard, I think, in football because so many people would count as close contacts if you're doing anything like a normal practice or if you've played in a game together or you need to shut the whole team down uh, and let the virus work its way out of the clubhouse or the locker room. And unfortunately, that can take a week or, or longer. And I'm wondering on that thought, um, do we need to keep your, your backup quarterback away from your starter? Totally separate those two? I think that would be smart. I think it would be smart to, as much as you can, create small networks within the team who uh, practice and train together, uh, hopefully from different positions. I, I know that's really difficult because like your, your O-line needs to practice together, right? So, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily uh, saying every offensive lineman has to be separate, but maybe mix starters and reserves uh, or something like that uh, and, and do the minimum necessary to get cohesion in a game. Because if you give the virus smaller, consistent networks to travel through, then if somebody does test positive, okay, you only have to remove everybody in his pod, right? Which if that's one guy at every position, that's a lot better than knocking out your entire starting O-line, right? Mm -hmm. so, but but it's, it's a balance, just like with everything in life. You have to balance what you should do with livability, uh, and you have to benefit, uh, balance risks and benefits. And your goal is just to make sure the benefits outweigh the risks of anything that you're doing. And I think this, uh, this isn't any, sep any, any different. Uh, but keeping your backup quarterback separate, I think, would be a smart move. I wonder how much teams could maybe eliminate doing, instead of ones versus ones and ones versus twos, you can maybe only do uh, ones versus twos all year. So your, your starting offense would go against the backup defense. Your starting defense would go against the backup offense. And you try not to to intermingle like you normally would there. Um, maybe that's one way that you can try to do a little bit of what you were talking about. I think as much as you can reduce it, uh, that would be a great idea. I keep thinking about the locker rooms because a lot of teams now during, uh, during training camp have expanded into the visitor locker room in order to give players more space, you know, where you block out the lockers on either side of one player so that instead, you, usually in, in training camp, you're putting more lockers in the middle of the room for all the undrafted free agents. Now they're trying to spread everyone out. 
The problem is once the regular season comes, you can't do that anymore. Once a, when a game comes, the visitors all have to be in one locker room regularly spaced and the home team has to be in one locker room regularly spaced. You no longer have one team over two locker rooms. Yeah, spending time, extended time indoors in groups is how we know this virus most easily spreads. And I, I suspect, we still don't have good data from MLB on this, but I suspect that maybe that's what we saw with the Marlins and the Cardinals uh, in baseball, is that a lot of the spread was happening from time they were spending together in hotels in the clubhouses, in dugouts, not on the field, right? And so I think you definitely have to be concerned about that as uh, an NFL team as well. Anything you can do to really minimize that time in the locker room and spend more time on the field or at makeshift uh, outdoor facilities uh, will really, really help. So let's talk about fans for a moment, because that's something you've been uh, very verbal about on Twitter. That's a very kind way of putting it, yes. Uh, let's talk about the idea that we're going to have fans in the stands, whether it be college or pro football. I mean, it's funny. You mentioned the USL earlier. I know that USL actually has had some fans in the stands. I have no idea what's happened with that. But, you know, some NFL teams have said we're definitely not having fans in the stands. Other NFL teams have said we're not for the first game of the season. Uh, Dallas, for one example, has insisted that they're going to have fans. Why is it so dangerous for teams to have fans in the stadium? Well, particularly when you talk about indoor stadiums like Dallas and Indy and Atlanta, who, as far as I know, are all still talking about the potential for having fans. We, we need to do everything we can to be avoiding large indoor gatherings right now. A football game in a dome with fans is pretty much the definition of a large indoor gathering. Even if you think you're going to be able to distance people in seats, they could still be interacting on the concourses, which are uh, enclosed areas. Um, you say we're going to mandate masks. I question whether you're really going to enforce that. Is stadium security really going to enforce mask usage? I mean, we've seen, for example, some police and sheriff's departments say they're not going to do it. So, uh, you know, I would be concerned about uh, security being willing to do that, especially given the type of people who would self-select to go to a game. Uh, during a pandemic. And I just think that, like I said earlier, every step we take back towards normality has a risk and a benefit associated with it. And our job is to make sure that the benefits outweigh the risks. So you bring sports back without fans. You're creating a risk to players and staff and their families and their communities. But you can argue that you can do it safely enough that the benefits, the social and, and psychological and emotional benefits and economic benefits for the country and the related industries outweigh that, right? I think that's an argument you can make. When you start talking about adding fans, you're adding a whole lot of risk from putting a whole lot of people together in the same place. And the benefits are what? What are we as society getting in return for that? The ability for a few people to go to a game? I'm sorry. I don't, I don't see it. Obviously, the teams are getting money, but is that really something we as a society should be supporting or spending our limited resources on right now? Because there's a very real possibility it contributes to more cases. And when you can't even open schools, why are we, um, why are we talking about fans? It just it doesn't make sense to me in terms of priorities. You know, I'm sorry to say. Well, so you, you mentioned something interesting there about the argument for sports to come back in, not the fans aspect, but reducing uh, the 
health burdens that are occurring because of shutdowns and things like that, or, or helping the mental ease of the country, having a diversion and, and a sense mm-hmm. of normalcy to go back to. Is there a way to quantify what those benefits are? How do you go about approaching that? Oh boy, uh, that would be a very intensive analysis that I have not uh, had time to do. And I think that reasonable people will come to two different conclusions about that. Um, so we all have to reason under a lot of uncertainty and come to our own conclusions about that. And different players are coming to different conclusions about that with deciding to opt out or not. And I completely respect uh, their decision, no matter, no matter which side uh, it's on. You want to play? I understand. You don't want to play? I understand. I support it. I I support your choice based on your specific circumstances. But let me, let me add in something there because I realize some people may take something from that that I don't mean that, Hey, it's your life. Do what you want. Like for everything. No, because when it comes to an infectious disease, pandemic literally means as, as Ed Yong wrote uh, in the Atlantic, all people, all people are tied together in this. My ability to stay healthy depends on your choices. And likewise, your choices, your ability to stay healthy depends on my choices. So no, we shouldn't just say everybody can do everything they want, right? We have to set kind of a baseline of some things that we just should not uh, unfortunately be allowing right now under the circumstances. That to me would include sporting events with fans, uh, bars, things like that, areas that we know could either be a high risk for a super spreader event or have demonstrated over and over again that they have been. Um, you know, we need to address those as a society. Then you get to more sort of in the middle things of like, how much risk is this really generating? And that is where people can make a little bit more uh, of their own personal decisions. And I think there is some room for that, but we've got to come together as a country and realize that there are some things we just cannot allow to happen right now, I'm afraid, until we get it under control, which we can. We can. We know what to do. Public health officials have decades of expertise and experience in this. We've seen country after country get it under control. There's a way. We've simply lacked the will thus far. Where does it end up? Um, Where do you see it going? Um, I know... I agree with, not agree. You're, I think you're, you're right that the, the blueprints out there and we just haven't followed it really as a country. Um, but assuming nothing changes on, on kind of the national level, we're kind of on mm-hmm. the same trajectory that we've been on. How do you think it plays out in, in the NFL season, the college football season? Um, do you think the NFL season will go forward? Will it look something like what MLB has looked like? Um, is all of college destined to postpone? What sort of a sense do you have of, of where you expect things to go? Well, unfortunately, I mean, I think the median expectation for the NFL would have to be MLB's experience, right? That's the other major league outside of the USL that's come back uh, outside of a bubble. And we may see outbreaks that force teams to shut down. Uh, the NFL thinks that uh, their protocols are, are more solid. Uh, they are continuing daily testing for a while, which may help. They may be getting testing results back somewhat faster. That may help some, but they also have more people in more contact, so that raises the risk. So, um, you know, it's, it's going to depend on everybody being really, really careful for months uh, and, and pulling together, and we're going to see if that's able to happen or not. I, uh, I am worried. As a football fan who wants to see this season go forward, I'm worried that we're not going to. College football, the biggest problem they have is the college part of that, where they're trying to exist on broader campuses with thousands or tens of thousands of other students 
uh, where I think uh, you can't you can't bubble the students uh, in any way. You can't uh, even really tell them to avoid social contact because they've got to, in theory, go to at least some classes. They're living in dorms. Some of them, you know, there's just there's a lot of ripe opportunities for the virus to really cruise through a college campus in general, and and a college football team is no exception to that. So, you know, I'm very worried about any college league that tries. Uh, to play because we've seen them uh, demonstrate an utter inability to keep the virus under control during summer workouts. Why would you expect them to do better during the regular season? It sounds like your expectation there is is that hopefully they would postpone to the spring at least as a minimum at a minimum as some of the conferences have done. I'm curious, like how does it work? So I've never been in a situation like this before. Say a vaccine is approved in December or on January 1st, something like that. Mm -hmm. How does that work in terms of like what happens at that point? How does distribution work? Would that be enough time to get things together for college football in the spring? A vaccine is tough. And yes, you can consider, look, I have no problem with with conferences saying we're going to revisit this in the spring. Got no problem with that. What's going to improve by the spring? Possible we could have better treatments. We've had some improvements along those lines, but not to the point that we need. Um, You could, the darkest timeline would be we have herd immunity because everybody got infected and a few hundred thousand more people died, right? Okay, then sure, go to college football. We earned it by killing a bunch of people, but I hope that that's not what's going to happen. Uh, My biggest hope would be that we... uh, get some of these very rapid tests that kind of work like pregnancy tests and cost about one to $2 where you spit on a strip of paper and it gives you a result in 15 minutes. And if everybody can do that every day or every other day at home before they go to work or get on the practice field on a team or whatever, then you can keep the virus under control with very frequent testing combined with contact tracing and uh, isolation and support of anybody who needs to isolate because they're sick with grocery delivery, elder care, uh, this, that, and the other. It's, it's got to be this, this big integrated approach. Um, but let's talk about a vaccine. Best case scenario, in my view, and this is what Dr. Fauci has, has said, would be like early 2021, probably. And that's relying on these phase three trials to be successful, which we have no guarantee of. But let's say we do have a vaccine in January. It's still going to take months to mass produce, distribute, and administer that vaccine. People need to be thinking in a matter of months after that, not weeks. If anybody has seen the movie Contagion, uh, which is a favorite among epidemiologists, not necessarily for its complete accuracy, but because of the subject matter, uh, they eventually come up with a vaccine for the disease. Spoiler alert. Sorry, sorry. But they give they do this lottery for all Americans. and They give everybody these wristbands. And it's like based on your birthday, I think uh, it can take weeks or months. Uh, And one of the the storylines at the end is one of the characters uh, gives up his spot in line to another character uh, to get them the vaccine earlier. So that's the kind of situation that people need to be expecting, that not everybody is going to get vaccinated on day one or even in month one. At this time, we didn't get a chance to get there with Zach, but I wanted to give a brief public service announcement about denominators. Um, And this one comes directly from Mark Simon. Um, who uh, wants to point this out to everybody out there. When you look into any sort of COVID statistics about positivity rates, check to see if they're reporting the total number of tests or the total number of players tested. There's a big difference between a 1% rate of positivity when you've tested the same player 10 times and he's been 
uh, clean each of those times versus the actual number of players being tested on a given day. Um, so keep an eye out when you're looking at any of these statistics. From my co-host, Aaron Schatz, and our producer, Justin Stein, I'm Matt Manicharian, and thank you for joining us for the latest episode of the Off the Charts Football Podcast. I'll kick it back over to Zach for the final word. Wear a mask, avoid large indoor gatherings. Thanks a lot, guys. Mm-hmm.